Super good, guys. Thank you for, uh, for sharing. Last week, we, um, we kicked off a new series, and we began with what um, the writers of all four of the Gospels felt was essential to the story of Jesus. If you were going to understand, we're, we started at Christmas, and we're going to work our way to the cross. If, if you were going to start to tell the story of Jesus, all four of the Gospel writers agree you have to start in the same place, and it's not actually with Jesus. It was a man named John. We know him as John the Baptist. His message, shocking. Essentially, he was telling people how to get ready, how to prepare, for, well, you hear it in the movies, to meet their maker. He was arguing with them that they were living in the end times, at least the end times for religion as they knew it. That something, more precisely somebody, someone, was coming, and when he got there, actually John revealed that he was there, he was coming to set the world on fire, to, to turn everything as they knew it upside down. He, he used the language not of a coming religious figure or religion, but he spoke about a, a king that was going to reveal himself and usher in a new kingdom. And, and then when people asked, when they got kind of worked up, I mean, John was, was quite a figure, they begin to go, okay, we're with you. What do we do to prepare for this, this king and this coming kingdom? And again, his answers, his answers were really ridiculously surprising. A lot of people ask today, what do we do to prepare? What if it's the end days? John's answers, I think, should still ring true. And they had nothing to do regarding anything specifically religious. When he was asked, what should we do? And John didn't say, well, you need to pray more or fast more or sin less. He, he didn't say, here's all the things you need to give up. Here's what you need to sacrifice. Nothing like that. He essentially said, it. if you want to be ready and, and you don't want to miss this king and his new kingdom, and, and I'll just pause to tell you that lots of folks missed him then, and they're still missing him now, and it's especially dangerous for us that hang around the church because nothing masks Jesus like religion can. If you want to get ready, ready for this new king and this new kingdom that is starting, start living into the kingdom under the king now. Stop, put away, change the way, the direction you're walking and living, change what you think, what you believe, what you trust, and start going in a different direction. Start living under the trust of this king. Start living in the ways of his kingdom. If you begin to do that now, you won't miss him then. Well, specifically, the crowd was a bit confused, right? They asked him, well, what do we, what do, we do? Super interesting question because it, it wasn't, well, what should we believe or how should we think? They wanted to know, just often like we do. Okay, well, what do we do now? And so John said, here's what you should do. You should bear fruit. You should bear fruit in line with your repentance. In other words, you should begin to live out of a way that comes from the way you've changed your mind and the way you think. Specifically, he goes, okay, you want to know what you should do? If, you, if you've kind of repented of the old kingdom, here's, here's what you could do. Anybody who has two shirts should share them with one who has none. And anybody who has food should do the same. Which seems counterintuitive to what you would expect, right? I would have thought it would be something so much more, I don't know, religious, so much more grand. 
He'd go on to tell the tax collectors and then the soldiers, much the same thing. Don't, don't play by the rules of the old kingdom. He would tell those that had authority and power. He, he would say, live in line with the new. The days of personal religion, a, a vertical religion, all that matters is God and me, and as long as I'm right with God, it doesn't matter. Those are about to end. So we're going to pick up this week. John had been building up this new king. One whom he said, and remember, John is, is giving this message in front of tens of thousands of people, so much so that all the rulers from Jerusalem have headed down there to, to see what's going on. John goes, if you think I'm trouble, let me tell you something. If you think I'm a big deal, there is one coming. I'm not even worthy of being his slave. Use, use slave language. I'm not even worthy of untying his shoes. And after all of the fanfare of the various emissaries, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Tetrarchs and kings that had made their way down to the Jordan, all four of the Gospels say that seemingly, I, I just love this, I don't know if you've ever noticed it, seemingly out of nowhere, almost unnoticed, with no fanfare, the way I kind of envisioned it this week was just kind of waiting in line with everyone else. Jesus shows up. Luke, right? Luke writes the most detailed accounts. Last week, I read you all of the details of when these events were going on. So detailed, right? Luke never skips a detail. Here's how Luke, the detailer, recorded it. When all of the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. That's it. No emissaries, no fanfare. Jesus didn't get into the, the River Jordan and it parted, nothing like that. No trumpets. And Jesus was baptized too. This is a very different king, ushering in a very different kind of kingdom. You can begin to see it already, which is why I think John said to the crowd, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said, look, because it's likely you're going to miss it. He's not what you're expecting. Later on, in fact, right, John would write, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, he's talking about Jesus, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. John, is, John the Baptist didn't yell out, believe. He didn't yell out, you've heard it said. John the Baptist said, look, he's right there. John would say, look, you, I've seen him. I've touched him. I've heard him. You can too. You can verify this. Check this out. You can know him. You, sh you should get to the place of, uh, that you put so much into this that you know. And if the thought of Jesus just kind of waiting in line with I mean, he's just waiting in line with tax collectors and, and prostitutes. Just waiting his place in line. I mean, if that, if that blows your mind, what happens next? I mean, really, if, if, if you understood it, it, it should take your breath away. Because I think it likely took John's breath away. This great king waits his turn in line and then walks up to John. And he doesn't walk up to John and say what, what you would think he would say. You'd think he'd walk up and go, thanks, Johnny, I'll take it from here. Right? Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Everyone, I'm the one he's been talking about. It's not what he says. 
he walks up to John to get baptized. To, in a very real way, to understand, I, I, you need to understand what's going on here, to, in a very real way, lower himself under John and to submit to this baptism of John's. It, it was a baptism then of repentance. It was a baptism of cleansing for the remission of sins. Sins which Jesus of Nazareth had neither done, committed, nor would ever commit. And that's why when Jesus gets in the river, John understands this is the sinless, spotless lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John looks at Jesus and he goes, what a contemporizer. What are you doing? I need to be baptized by you. And you're coming to me? What is this king? This is the king. What is this king doing? And so Jesus replies, he, he, he said to John, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. John's baptism, right? John, what John was proclaiming out in the woods, his baptism was a sign of repentance. It was a way for the people to acknowledge, I am sinful and far from God. And, and this is why John says to Jesus, you, what are you doing John says to Jesus, I need to be in your place. Why would I baptize you? This should be the other way around. Conversely, he looks at Jesus and he goes, what, what are you doing in my place? What am I doing in yours? Friends, listen to that again. What, Jesus, what are you doing in my place? What are you, you're going to go down under the water of God's judgment? What are you going to do down there? Why would I be up here in your place, in this place of blessing? This is your place. That's my place. Jesus says, this is for now. It's for the purposes of righteousness. He says to John, guys, listen, this is so important. He says to John, he goes, look, I, I am, I'm not just an example. For the rest of time, people will use me as a life well-led, as, as a very good teacher, as a, a profound prophet. And Jesus goes, I, I, I need you to understand I'm, I'm here for a bigger purpose than that. I'm actually here as a substitute. I have come to, to not just repent in your place. I, I've come to live in your place and to fulfill all of the righteousness demanded by the law and, and then to die in your place so that you can stand in my place of righteousness, so that you can be like me. You can now stand before God blameless and upright, forgiven, renewed, restored. Jesus is saying to John, I will take your curse, what you deserve, and here's what I have for you. All the blessing that's due me, I'm going to give to you. Every other king who has ever lived has demanded that you die for them. But this king's message is I will wait in line to have the opportunity to die for you. John's message, his message to the people on the shores was, now you should go and do the same. There's a new king in town, and there's a new kingdom. Now, 
if you were there, and we showed these pictures last week because I want this to be real to you, right? If you were there, honestly, yesterday when all of the bigwigs showed up, all the fanfare and the trumpets and, you know, the caravans, that seemed like a big deal. So far, you know, Jesus goes down on the water, he just waits his turn. This doesn't all seem like that big of a deal until now. Because as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. If you don't hear anything else this morning, I need you to hear these words. These are the keys to the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. My son, whom I love, I am well pleased. This was for Jesus, who's lived, we, we've said, somewhat of an unremarkable life, at least in the, the eyes of the gospel writers. There's been very little written about his life so far. This had to be a mountaintop experience, right? Hearing those words audibly from his Father in heaven. I mean, he had been humble and obedient, and he's re rewarded with these incredibly powerful words. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a spiritual mountaintop experience. Maybe you've gone on a retreat in high school. Maybe you had an incredibly powerful time with God. I know for me, one of the most powerful times I ever had with God was driving through central Pennsylvania, and you would think, what possible good could be in central Pennsylvania? But I had this experience with God in my car where it was just overwhelming to me. And I just, I began to cry just because I could feel his presence so deeply. Maybe it was emotional for you. Maybe it was thoughtful. But there's something that almost all of us can attest to. What almost always follows moments of, of spiritual victory, of, of breakthrough, of intimacy and closeness and obedience and surrender to God. What almost always follows a spiritual high? Anyone? A spiritual low. What almost always comes after the mountaintop are deserts and valleys. And for Jesus, who, who has already identified with us in baptism, who's already proclaimed, I'm here to exchange places with you, this will be his story too. Your story will become his story. And why? Because, friends, we don't live in a spiritually neutral world. I think oftentimes we, we tend to think the closer we get to God, well, the less problems that we should have. But that is not the story of the scriptures. It has not been my story. It wasn't Jesus's. Then, Matthew records, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right then. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. I love him then. I like how Mark writes it. Mark goes, at once. There's something, there's, a, there's a, a tie here. At once, he is led off to the battle. The same spirit who had just come upon Jesus after his baptism is the same spirit that now leads him into the wilderness. And I think he's led there for our sake. Some of my friends know that I live by a little statement I have observed to be true in my own life. If you push into the darkness, the darkness pushes back. If you push into the darkness, I'd like to tell you this isn't true, 
If you push into the darkness, the darkness pushes back. I can tell you that if you stay sidelined, if you just kind of play out your life, your role in the kingdom of this world, you know, the, the kingdom of this world where if you have two shirts, you make sure you keep one so that you'll always have enough. If you use your power, like the tax collectors and the soldiers of, of John the Baptist's day, right? If you use your power and you leverage it for, for your, your, your position and, and your protection and your advantage, if you live by the ways of this world and this kingdom, I'm just going to be honest, you're not going to face all that much opposition. You know who your opposition will be? Your neighbor who's trying to live by those same things. But if you choose to follow a different king with a different kind of kingdom, that's where the conflict starts. And so I, I want to pause for just a moment before I brush by this, because I know it's the year 2024, and the concept of, of the devil, right? John, you really believe in the devil? Uh, the concept of a personal evil force at work in the world, can we be honest, right? I mean, it seems somewhat primitive, or primitive, a bit fairy taleish, wouldn't you say? I mean, talking about the devil in 2024, it seems unsophisticated and maybe naive at, at best. At worst, it's kind of embarrassingly gullible, right? Yet, yeah, if you're here this morning and you're open, I mean, I think you probably are here this morning. I don't know where you are on the journey of faith, but if you're here this morning and you're open to the belief in the existence of a personal, supernatural, good God, well, just logically, wouldn't you have to be open to the potential of a supernatural, personal, evil being? I mean, wouldn't it be logically inconsistent to say, well, I believe that that is, is, is at least possible, but that can't be? How about just empirically, right, when you look out over our world? Is it not hard to imagine that something other than human nature, which we keep insisting that human nature is good, isn't it possible that something other than human nature is, is behind all of the, the horrific atrocities of the world? I mean, just, just if you would open your mind to the possibility, both logically and empirically, I think you would have to acknowledge that at least the possibility exists. And then finally, since I believe that Jesus is who he said he is, the way, the truth, and the life, I believe because of the evidence of, uh, of Jesus' birth and his life and his death, mostly I believe because of the evidence surrounding his resurrection that Jesus is who he said he is. Jesus came along and said, I'm going to be crucified, and three days later I will rise from the dead. He predicted it and he pulled it off. I, if I believe that's all true, and, and I believe it is almost, almost beyond doubt, I think I can show you the evidence of all these things. If that same Jesus shows up and warns about a personal supernatural prince of this dark world, then I would say I have to take him seriously, don't I? So now, back to the story, because Jesus is about to be like us in another very common way. Jesus is about to face temptation. And it is going to be the same kind of temptation with the same kind of deep roots that has the potential for Jesus, just like it does for you and I, to derail his life and his work and his purposes and his dreams and his goals and his hope, his love, 
just the way, and if you have fallen, if you have fallen prey to temptations, just the way that those temptations often do our lives. Matthew writes that after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, which again would make him a lot like you and I. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, Jesus knew he could do this. Heck, you and I know he, he could do this because he would do this. Quite famously, on a couple of occasions, he would take a couple of, of fish and loaves and turn them into thousands of fish and loaves to feed people. Jesus understood. He knew he had the power to do it. Catch that again, just like soldiers and tax collectors. He knew he had the power to do it. The temptation, though, and, and he was hungry, very, very, really hungry. The temptation was to trust in his own power, in his own abilities, to lean into what he could do, not necessarily what he should do, to take the responsibility back from God and to begin to trust in himself, to take care of himself, to do it himself, and not lean into the will or the provision of his heavenly Father. The temptation that John had just been speaking of in the river, the temptation that leads to hoarding and piling up and storing up and building bigger barns of keeping two undergarments for me even though I only need one. How, how do we know that's the temptation? Because of the way Jesus answered him. He, he said, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was actually reaching back into the history of the Jewish people, taking a story, a scripture from the Torah in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy where God recounted for the people of Israel how he had provided for them when they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Symbolically, how long had Jesus been wandering for? How long he'd been hungry for? 40 days. And how God had provided for them daily manna. Just enough for the day. Just enough so that they had enough. Just enough so that they would be full, but not so much that they could hoard it. Some of you know the story. If they did, it would rot. Just enough so that if they took more than they, they could use because it would rot, that they would have to give it out and help others with it. Here's the actual verse where that comes from. Moses wrote, speaking to the people about God, he humbled you. How did he humble his people? Because he caused them to hunger. Does this sound familiar to what's going on with Jesus? Causing them to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you or your ancestors knew, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus understood the test. Jesus, trust in yourself was the test. You can do it. You can hear the evil one prodding him. You can do it. I know you can do it. You know you can do it. Jesus, do you want to rely on God down here? Do you know how risky that is? I mean, after all, you are the son of God. Why should you be hungry? Jesus, what did you do to deserve this? Jesus, the tempter, pushes on. You should, you should live by my kingdom's principles when you're here. If you could, you most definitely should. If you can for you, then do for you. Don't, don't, Jesus, don't, you, Jesus, don't depend on God. You just don't know. Just be your own God. Just act independently. Would you just strike out for once on your own? You don't really need him. And maybe, 
Maybe he won't come through for you. You're pretty hungry, aren't you, Jesus? I mean, it's just some stones. Maybe there won't be any bread coming. You know, there's a few loaves here. You could pile some up for tomorrow, too. And he was tempting Jesus to do exactly what the John the Baptist had just said not to, to live by the principles of a fading kingdom. John would later record, John, Jesus' disciple, report that Jesus said the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. It's a kingdom of submission. It's a kingdom of faith. It's a kingdom of trust. It's a kingdom where as long as I have enough, I I give away to others. Humble, obedient, submissive, and easy to miss, isn't it? Like really easy to miss. And so Matthew goes on, he says, then the devil took him to the holy city, to Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the, uh, uh, of the temple. And I take Matthew at his words because he, he had not started following Jesus yet. He's, as this story is going, going on, Jesus, Matthew's still collecting taxes, still oppressing the, his fellow Jews. He likely got this story from Jesus. And Jesus seems to report that he and the devil went on a road trip. The temptation wasn't just momentary. Maggie, do you have the map back there that you can put up? This is the um, bigger portion of the map. We talked about it last week. Here's the smaller portion. That number four there is where John had been, uh, been baptizing people. That's the site of, of John's baptism. We're not exactly sure where Jesus was taken, but he's taken initially just out into the wild, the wild areas, to the desert, some would say. So they go, on, they go on this road trip, and they walk from the wilderness. Um, now they go to the temple. So the temple is over here in Jerusalem. That's number nine. So Jesus is likely out here somewhere. Now they walk over to Jerusalem. It wasn't a quick trip. It took a little bit of time. And when they get there, the devil leads Jesus in together. I, I wonder if others saw this. Walk right by the devil and Jesus. Can you imagine? Walk right by them. Didn't even know it. And they, took, they, they went up to the highest point on the temple mount. Many scholars believe this is the southeast corner of the temple where, where the royal portico and Solomon's porch met. And you could see all the way down to the Kidron Valley. Its heights, it was so high for its day, its time period, they were quite revered. Again, we talked about him last week, the Jewish historian Josephus, in recording the history of his people. This was such an accomplishment in the history of his people. He speaks about the height of this corner of the temple. He wrote, if anybody looked down from the top of the battlements or down both of those heights, he would be giddy, almost dizzy, while his sight could not reach to such an immense depth. According to what I read based on kind of 10-foot stories, this would be about 45 stories high. And evil personified as they sat there looking all over the Kidron Valley. He said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you and they'll lift you up in their hands so that you won't strike your foot against a stone. Uh, Not only does he tempt him, you know what he tempted him with? Scripture. Jesus previously responded with scripture, and so now evil one-ups him. Something, by the way, can I just encourage you as followers of Jesus, everybody quoting scripture to you might not exactly be who they seem. And so the devil says to Jesus, you know, Jesus, the whole thing back there at the Jordan, 
You don't understand. Nobody really caught, caught that. I was there the day before. I saw all the important people show up. I saw all the caravans and the trumpets and the camels. You should have been there that day, Jesus. That was a huge deal. It was a big, it was a big scene, lots of pomp and circumstance. And I mean, there's tens of thousands of people down there seeing John. I mean, Jesus, if you're the son of God, you're a bigger deal. Here's your chance to prove it. I mean, Jesus, you jump off here. The scripture says it's right here. You jump off here. Everybody, I mean, we're at the temple. It's crowded. Everybody's going to see this. You could really make a name for yourself here. Everybody will know who you are. Everyone will know, and they'll all believe. And, and you know what he's saying to Jesus? If you do this now, you won't even need the cross later. They'll worship you now. You can get to the crown without the cross. And he's trying to get Jesus to fall for the temptation that we so easily do. To use God. To take a verse and, and then say, well, it says it, I proclaim it, I do it. To get God, God exists just to get me what it is that I want. To, to use God and, and his word as a means to my own end and not as a means to God. To use God to glorify myself, to get my way, to build my kingdom. That's God's purpose in my life, is to glorify me and give me all the desires of my heart. To which Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, he goes right back to Moses, right again to the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is reminding his people as they enter into the promised land, to, quote, fear the Lord your God and serve him only. Not idols, not others. He's telling the people, you're going to forget him when you get in there because it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Do not forget him. Do not serve idols. Do not serve yourself. Friends, this is where religion becomes superstition, where, where, where you, you begin worshiping idols and you're not even aware of it because you're trying to get somebody to do your bidding by by just naming it and claiming it. Moses and Jesus, I think, would tell you, the minute you start using God and presuming on God, thinking that there's a, a formula to this, if I, if I just do it this way, if I'm good enough, if I obey enough, if I sacrifice enough, if I say it this way, if I pray it this way, if I pray it this way 10 times, if I pray it this way for 10 straight days, then God is obliged to do something. Whenever you begin to manipulate God, you have to understand you are no longer serving God. And so the devil gives it one more shot. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. And again, real story, real place, you can go visit it. There's actually a sign. I saw a road sign for it as I was doing my research this week. It's called uh, Mount, the Mount of Temptation. It's a mountain that overlooks the city of Jericho in the West Bank. It's about an hour and 15-minute car ride from the temple. Pretty sure Jesus and the devil didn't get in a car, so I imagine it took them a little longer. But it's another road trip. Can you imagine the conversation along the way? What you see up on the mountain there is a monastery that's actually been built upon it. And on that mountain, likely very on that mountain, 
on that mountain, the devil and, and Jesus sat down. The devil that Jesus would actually acknowledge later, the devil who is the ruler of this world, Paul would call him the prince of the power of the air of this world. The devil says to Jesus, look at all of this. You see over there, Jesus, that's Jericho. Your people tell a story about the walls. But I'm in charge of Jericho. And Jesus, you see over there, that's Jerusalem off in the distance. It's the holy city. That's mine too. Jesus, look at it all. It is the vastness of my empire. Jesus, I'll give it to you. I'll hand the keys to you. They're mine to give. I'll give them to you. I will give you my kingdom. Jesus, I will make you king of my kingdom. All you have to do is bow down. All you have to do is acknowledge me. All you have to do is tell me you want it. Cheers for the taking. You can have it all. You can rule it all. Jesus, you can win. I know you came to be in charge, to take over. Forget all of that. I'll give it to you right now. It's yours. My kingdom now is your kingdom. Jesus, look down there. They all want it. Everybody's working so hard for it. They're all playing by the rules of my kingdom. They're all living out the schemes of my kingdom, bowing down to my ways, using my ways to get ahead. Everybody down there, Jesus, they're all into it, striving, clawing, sweating, trying to get ahead of one another, using everything in their power, everything in their arsenal just to one-up somebody else, just to get a, a little bit more. Jesus, you don't have to do any of that. I'll give it all to you right now. Can you imagine you and I who work so hard to get to the top of this kingdom, who strive so hard just to cobble a little bit more out for ourselves, just a, just a little bit more stuff so I don't have to worry, a little bit more power, a little, a little bit more strength or leverage or glory, a, a little bit better identity, a, a little more significance. Can you imagine if this was offered to you? Because it still is. This is the golden ticket. This is like the winning Powerball ticket, like here. It's yours. To which Jesus said, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. To which Jesus said, looking over all the kingdoms of this world. To which Jesus said, as he breathed in the cool night air the prince of all of its power sitting right next to him with keys in hand, Jesus looked out and said, I don't want it. It's not the kingdom I came for. It's the wrong kingdom. Get away from me. I didn't come for that. I came to establish a new one. I have to tell you, it must not have been easy. Two of the gospel writers say that, that after this temptation, angels came to attend to him. The temptation was so severe because I think he said it with full knowledge of what it was going to cost him to establish that kingdom. This is a new kingdom. It is a new king. And yet the temptations remain exactly the same, don't they? The temptations not to trust God, to, to rely on ourselves, to pile up 
treasure, to, to hoard for, for our own safety and security, and, and so that we can boast. The greed, which, which ultimately only leads to so much anxiety and worry over our loss. The, the temptation to use God and presume upon God, to, to believe that he exists only as a means to our ends, to extend our kingdom. The temptation to get ahead, to, to get a piece of this kingdom, to use the ways and the means and the rules of this kingdom where, where might makes right, where we use our leverage and our power and our position to claw ourselves ahead. The temptations that actually, and many of us know this by now, that they actually never give us what they promise. Jesus later on, maybe in light of this last temptation, would quite famously say, because he had... He was tempted by this. I need you to understand that. Jesus was tempted. It wasn't like it didn't, it wasn't like it didn't matter to him. He was tempted by it. And looking back, I think it was what allowed him to say, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? And, and so I'll close with this. Um, in my opinion, the overarching point of the whole story, why it's included in three of the four gospel stories. And I think we miss it. We miss it um, just like we do every single day. This is why we keep falling for the same old lies of the temptations in our world. Right before the devil shows up, do you remember what happened that, that right before that led immediately to the temptation? Right before the devil came, what had God said? You are my son whom I love in whom I'm well pleased. Now, I know you've seen a lot of horror movies about the devil, about demons, right? And we're so conditioned to believe that when the devil shows up, he shows up in these crazy, supernatural, spooky ways. You hear the, hear the voice, right? Somebody's head spins around. Somebody's levitating. Knives start coming. Just pulled out of the kitchen drawer. Blood's getting written on the walls. I mean, maybe, but that's not my predominant experience, nor was it Jesus's. You know how, I want you to hear this. You know how evil gets a foothold in your life? The same way it tried to in Jesus's life. Did you catch what preceded the temptations? Did you catch what preceded the temptations? It was a question, a repeated question. Do you remember it? If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God. God had just told him who he was. The evil one comes along and goes, if you're the son of God. Don't you see, guys, there's no bats or blood or knives. It's just a question. It's a, it's a little seed of doubt that takes root. It, it goes all the way back to what Jesus said to John in the river. He goes, John, I didn't, I didn't come to be an example for you. I mean, I, I am, but that's not my point. I, I'm not like every other religious figure, every other so-called God or Messiah who shows up to merely teach you or to show you. Because if you fall for that, John, if you begin to think that I'm merely an example or a teacher, you'll miss me. In fact, you begin to constantly wonder if you've measured up to me, if you've been good enough or righteous enough. You'll begin to wonder if God is even pleased with you if you, if you go down that road, John. Every time something happens to you, every time you experience a temptation, you'll begin to think that God's abandoned you. Friends, Jesus did not come to be your example. He came to be your substitute. 
He came to take your place. In fact, he came to exchange places with you. Jesus' disciple John would go on to write, See what great love the Father has, past tense, has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. It is not dependent on you. Jesus has changed places with you. We are sons and daughters of God. There is no if. Listening to the voice in your head that says if brings you right back into the kingdoms of this world where if it's an if, then I've got to strive and fight and claw and hoard and fear and worry. The great temptation, the great weapon of the devil is not likely that he's going to possess you or your children. It's that he might get you to believe. It's that he might get you to teach them that they are not sons and daughters of God. That Jesus is just some religious figure or teacher that, that you have to follow and live, live up to and earn your way to. This is why the king is so easy to miss. He doesn't look like or act like the kings of this world. He doesn't want what they want or act like they act. And so he, he's so easy to miss. This is why John would conclude, the reason the world doesn't know us is that they didn't know him. Implying that maybe you and I should look a little more like our king. Maybe we should live a little bit more in his kingdom of humility and Submission and selfless love. Friends, if the world is ooing and eyeing over you, if you're trying to get the world to ooh and ah over you, you may be serving the wrong king and trying to get ahead in the wrong kingdom. Luke says, I like this, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. He would be back. And Jesus would continue to face for the rest of his life the great temptation that you and I have to grab on to this kingdom and to play by its rules. I have to tell you that the prince of this kingdom awaits an opportune time in your life for you and me, likely not to possess you, but to get you to wonder at key moments in your life, maybe I'm not a child of God. Maybe I can't trust him. Maybe you hear the stories of the temptations and you think, well, it was easy for Jesus because he had all these things anyway. I mean, I mean, he was God after all. This was just a short thing he had to go through. It was easy for him. It would be easy for me too if I had all that stuff. Friends, I don't know if you've ever realized it. Paul recognized it and he begged for you to see it. Here's what he told the church in Rome. Now, if we're children of God, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we share in his sufferings in ordering that we may also share in his glory. You already have it too. You already have it. When the temptation comes to live in this kingdom, to be great here, to trust in yourself, to get ahead of others, to presume on God for your blessing, just do two things. First, first remember you are like Jesus. He made the great exchange. All that is his is now yours. It's all of yours. It will be, it is now, and it will be forever and ever and ever. At least if that's the kingdom you want. And when the question comes, when the seed of doubt gets dropped, remind yourselves of the words of your heavenly Father because of the great exchange of Jesus. You are a son or daughter of God. He loves you, and in you, he is well pleased.
Let's stand and close this song.